let's get started. As we begin the program, Sister Mary Eucharisto, one of the things that is so important is that we begin in prayer, especially if we're going to be prayerfully discussing the way of the cross, the stations of the cross. And so would you please lead us in an opening prayer? Thank you, Tom. I would be happy to do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Holding ourselves in quiet and allowing the Holy Spirit to come and transform us as we pray. In union with our sorrowful mother, during this time of Lent, and in honor of her son, with the great generosity, the magnanimity that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit reached forth to us and gave us not only redemption, but eternal life and um, the possibility of being resurrected ourselves. Lord, help, help us, please, so that we may indeed be transformed by the power of this Lenten journey. We ask that you please help us because sometimes the penances and different mortifications or prayers or practices that we have adopted uh, get a little tedious as we go forward, but we know that you are indeed transforming us every moment, and you are smiling upon us as we continue to love you and move forward in this journey. On the way to Calvary, Jesus went from the Transfiguration to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and that's where we are also uh, headed up to Calvary, and then on this great uh, celebration of the resurrection, we will then rise with you, Jesus. Thank you for this blessing. Help us to be truly informed in our hearts and in our minds of this, uh, of the great truths of our faith. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the sacraments. Thank you for the mass where we experience this on a daily basis. We're allowed to enter into that. And thank you for the stations. Thank you for the wonderful ways that the church offers us um, to be transformed in our ministries and in our lives and in our families and in our workplaces and in the world. Thank you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Mary Eucharista. I really appreciate it. So, you know, we're coming up on the halfway point of our Lent. Just a couple of days, if you can believe it, is halfway there. So just a quick check-in. Uh, if you care to share, how's your Lent going? Well, you know, Father was talking about that at Mass this morning, and um, he said, uh, when we when we answer, well, my Lent is going pretty well, um, he says, we can change that question to how is God doing in this relationship during Lent? Because it's his power and his transformation. We can't be transformed without him. So I'll say God's doing a great job. Me, well... Uh, you know, I mean, I could always, I look back on my day at each time I do the examination of conscience and I think, oh, I could have done that better. Oh dear. I better apologize for that. Oh my goodness. And you know, then I just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go down a strange little hole here if I don't count on you. So I ask you to help me to do better tomorrow. And I'm sure that that has, you know, increased the uh, probability that perhaps I will do better the next day. I like that answer. That that's uh, that's really well said, right? This is Thanks. it's less about us. It's more about what the Lord is doing in us. I uh, owe it to Father, though that answer because it didn't come from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one of the phrases I like to say, Sister Mary Eucharista, is that we have one chance to live Lent 2023. There's only one chance we have, and that Jesus has a desert with our name on it. And it's that personal, it's that intimate, it's that um, it's that attentive that the Lord is saying, I'm going to draw you out and the, the Holy Spirit's going to nudge you out into the desert that I have specially prepared for you. That is going to help cleanse you of your uh, attachments to the slavery of your Egypt. And it's going to form and prepare you for the promised land of good things that I have for you as well. So that, that idea of just making it so personal, so utterly personal that, uh, that the Lord has a very like a particular distinct uh, personalized Lent 
that the Lord has set aside for you. He's held in reserve for you. And there's something at stake in it because you only get one chance to do it. And when Lent is gone, it's all gone. So what do you think about that? Well, I think God is all powerful. And even though I, and by the way, well said, talk about well said you, that was beautiful. That gave me a whole, whole other kind of sphere because I, um, you know, I was near Egypt in September when I went to the Holy Land and I was in the Holy Land in September, very hot, very humid, by the way, September, not a good time to go over, but I'm just grateful I got to go at any point. Um, but I, uh, I think, I think that's very true. I think that that personalized uh, Lenten journey is, it, it, to me, when I think of the desert, I'm like, wow, just prayer, no work. I went on an eight day retreat last year. And that was a really, it is, it is difficult to be in the desert, but it's also difficult to be in the desert of our lives. And if we have God with us, there's no desert anywhere except the the more private one that you're speaking about, which is the place where we are tempted, the place where uh, we pray into the labors that we are to do. And also the, um, it's the, uh, it's the place where Jesus calls us to come away. And I really love that um, expression to come to the, our own personal desert. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and it's the funny thing about the desert, right? We think about the desert. I think a lot of Catholics as this is the uh, experience of dryness and absence of God. But in the scriptures, there's that other dimension that the desert's the place of encounter. It's a yeah. place of stripping away the things that we're attached to, the things that uh, fill us and make us feel uh, so distracted and diverted. And instead, no, now that we have nothing but God, right? Nothing but God, which is so beautiful to think that we have God, right? Uh, and, and that's what, Hosea 2, 14, I think it is, that I'll draw, I'll draw my beloved out into the desert and there speak to her heart. Um, that that's what the Lord wants for us in this land, just to speak to our heart. So isn't that a mystery that in the things that are hard for us, the stripping down, the letting go, the, the, the simplifying even radically, that that's a painful dying to self, that it's for the sake of an encounter, a, a richer, deeper, more profound encounter. Uh, and you know that um, being uh, at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, right? D directing programs and retreats and, and so many days of prayer and other events, you, you, you literally are in an oasis, right? Like, let's call it an oasis, like a in a desert, an oasis is that place of refreshment, that place of, of pouring in. I mean, how often are you encountering people who are like, I need to shed my day-to-day -day activities precisely in order to make room for God? You know, I love how you said that. And Lent is really a, a beautiful time to reflect on that that desert experience, especially in relation to a retreat, because every desert experience hopefully doesn't contain an encounter with Jesus. But certainly uh, the retreat ministry uh, is usually I, I have never not found it to be an encounter with Jesus. I just took a, a sacred art retreat last weekend or a few weekends ago. And all after after that, I went to mass. And I, I do, I canter at St. Peter Parish. And uh, I was just kind of reflecting before mass about, and I was thinking about something. And it, some of the powerful graces of the retreat just came and engulfed me. And I was like, wow, where did that come from? Because I didn't even realize that while I was, uh, you know, painting my image of the temptation of Jesus in the desert, I was, it was like I was absorbing some kind of meditative, deep, contemplative quality uh, element of the mystery of Christ that stayed with me. And I only could recognize it as I was still. And every time I was still, it floated in and just stayed with me. And I was like, boy, if this isn't a testimony to the power of retreat, I was really uh, mystified because not only did I have a good time, we didn't keep total silence, but it was the mystery of Christ that we were focused in on. That was, uh, you know, every mystery, someone asked me one day, 
what is it? Why do they call it mysteries? Like mysteries of the rosary, mysteries. Why? They're not mysteries. I mean, the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity. And I said, okay, well, sometimes when we get into a routine and we're typically calling something a mystery, we're also um, maybe routinizing, if you will, something that is so sacred and so profound and so large that we ourselves just kind of, we minimize it and make it into this little thing that fits into our mind. Oh yeah, the Annunciation. And I said, let's take the Annunciation. You know, the most incredible mystery that has taken place. One woman created by uh, by God's intervention um, without the stain of original sin, the only human being ever created up to that point besides Adam and Eve. And now she has a choice. She changes her plans as she accepts God's plan. And then is she is inseminated, if you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never in the world. I mean, myth- mythology wishes that could happen, but it wasn't ever the case. This was a a mystery. We cannot fathom this. We think we can. We put it in a little nutshell and say, oh yeah, the Annunciation. It's a massive mystery. This mystery that I was uh, working on in the retreat ministry, in in that one retreat, was this one mystery of the temptation of our Lord, Um, the three temptations. We were drawing these, we were, you know, painting these symbols and it really drew me into the, the, the major elements of our lives that contain obstacles to grace. And how Jesus in the image is, is, is putting up his hand like this and, and looking like this. And, and very humble, but at the same time, I will not. And I don't know, it, it did something to my heart, Tom. It made me on some level conform to that heart of Christ that eschews temptation and accepts the will of his father. And it touched me. It was beautiful. So yes, I, I do not realize the mystery I am in by being allowed to be here at the retreat center and calling this my ministry. Oh my goodness. It's awesome. You know, Sister Mary Eucharista, there is uh, an image that was used in the middle ages for reading the word of God and it was baking fresh bread that um, you can think of the idea of reading the Bible. Okay. Reading scripture. It's the word of God. It's just an everyday thing. You come back. It's the same, same words. They're not changing. It's the same scripture. And then you say, well, wait a minute. What about making bread every day? You're getting dough. You make it same process, same thing. But when you're done and that bread comes out of the oven, what is better than fresh bread? I mean, don't come forget on. butter. Don't forget butter. <laughs> it's Lent, sisters. Lent. Right? I still eat better though. Oh I'm not my a vegan. goodness. Oh my goodness. But if you, if just yeah. that, it's a very, very evocative way of talking about reading scripture. It's like fresh bread. Every day you're baking that bread. And when that fresh bread comes out, it's the same bread, but it's new. No, it's new. And it and, and it's tasty and it's, it's succulent. And I shouldn't be talking about this during Lent. This is terrible. This is horrible. Uh, but just read more scripture and you'll taste it. <laughs> I know, I know. Right? No, and, and what is the what is the Jesus in the de- in the desert? What does he say when uh, he was hungry? Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, not on bread alone is man to live, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that the the word of God is like heavenly fresh bread. So uh, that's what we're going to do today on the program, sister. And um, we're going to do what I call a dialogical Lexio Divina. How does that, doesn't that sound impressive? It sounds like really theological. A dialogical 
Lexio Divina. Okay, so what am I talking about? So Lexio Divina, folks, you know, it's it's a it's a method for reading scripture in a way that draws someone into a place of receptivity that the Lord is going to make a word or a particular phrase of scripture or an account in scripture come alive. He's going to say, "My beloved, I'm speaking to you through this word, through this uh, verse, or through this entire scripture." stay and be with me. So no, a dialogical Lexio Divina is that we're going to do it together. You and I together through our dialogue are going to encounter these mysteries that make up the stations of the cross. The stations of the cross, the way of the cross is a a critical, right? The hour. It's the hour of Jesus is his entering into his passion, culminating in his redemptive death on the cross. And so walking the stations of the cross is, it's a devotion. It's a devotion that Catholics can can obviously do throughout their year, but it does come out into the open and, and gets highlighted. I think that's, I think it's fair to say, it's easy to say, more fully during Lent, that parishes will regularly have a Stations of the Cross, typically Friday night. Sometimes they do it connected to their uh, soup and salad or fish fry, and then they have a Stations of the Cross. I know that we did that for years and years as a family. Um, sister, so let's just start with the idea of the Stations of the Cross as a as a practice in the life of faith. Um, how would how would you say that the Stations of the Cross was part of your life and maybe is part of your life now? Well, you know, when I was a little child, I used to just be in church and I would look around and oftentimes I would see neighbors or, you know, parishioners going around and doing the Stations privately. And I was kind of restless at my seat. And so one day when mom was doing it, I just went with her and I just kind of shuffled around and did the stations with her. And then pretty soon I realized I could do this myself. So I started doing it and it was, um, you know, uh, at the back of the church, sometimes they had those little booklets. So I would look at the pictures in the booklets and match them up to the image of Jesus uh, up on the wall. And I had no idea how all of this originated. I just figured churches always had this. But I didn't know that this actually originated from the Holy Land. Um, they have it, um, I think, from the time of Constantine. Christians would go over there and um, they would, pilgrims would would visit the stations. And the, um, you know, there was a tradition in the Holy Land that Mary visited those spots all the time. In fact, in one resource I heard daily, she would go and uh, revisit. I those. never heard that. That is yeah. so striking. Yeah. And she, uh, you can imagine her, you know, pondering these things in her heart, as it says in Luke, she is, uh, of course, she was witness to this incredible event of the passion and also witness post passion with the resurrection, uh, you know, Jesus visiting her, it is believed. And also, um, you know, so so I didn't know all this, though, when I was following my mom around or going myself to the stations. And then they would do the choral stations, which was, you know, uh, one priest leading it from the front, the cross and, and torchbearers going around to the different stations. And uh, that was a little harder, especially if you were restless in your pew. But I had the picture book and I was looking at it. And then pretty soon I had the adult stations and I was pretty happy about having those. But um you know, my mom had a little crucifix and it was very brown. And on the back, it had a special uh, inscription. She had gotten this in uh, Rome when she went back for the whole year in 1950. And uh, or it might have been her mom might have gotten it at, a, at another point. But any, at any rate, she said, this is the crucifix that goes down in your family. And you get the same indulgences of doing these stations um, you know, going from station to station, if you're sick or something, or you just can't go around by holding that crucifix and making the stations, you actually have the special indulgence that normally you wouldn't have had if you didn't have that little crucifix. That crucifix, at least in those days, could not be lent to someone, someone outside of the family 
or even given away, uh, it would lose its indulgence. So it's a very curious thing. I was just doing a little more research this morning about that. And I found out that, in fact, the stations were not, um, the friars, uh, the Franciscans, you know, St. Francis made a connection with the sultan in the Holy Land during the tw- in the 1200s when he went over there. And so the sultan, because Francis was so endearing and actually said he would walk on coals and everything to show that Jesus was true, uh, the sultan's like, you know, I just like you. So I'm going to let you go ahead and your guys can watch out for these holy sites. And this was one of the most uh, forward-thinking sultans that they'd ever had. And as a result, the Franciscans are still in charge over there, but Franciscans were also in charge of erecting any kind of stations of the cross in any church. And this was protected by popes. It wasn't until, um, and and in fact, the stations weren't just 14 stations. Um, In uh, 1515, uh, the friars in Jerusalem, when they were consulted about, there was a, a gentleman who was going to erect some stations, I think in France, But anyway, um, he checked in with these friars in Jerusalem and they said, well, you know, there's not just we don't know how many stations there are. There could be as many as they said that they usually followed 31 stations. Um, Other resources said there were 19 stations and another resource said 25. Another one said 37. So lots and lots of stations. But um, and then down to 12 stations. And those were the stations that were all of our stations up to the 12th, Jesus dies on the cross. So that was at one point, the ending point. Um, But in 1686, one of the, or the, uh, the permission was given uh, that they had to erect the stations with only a Franciscan. I mean, there were no other alternates, like even a bishop could not erect the stations in your, in, with, but he had to, you know, the, the ordinary had to give permission. But in 1862, the bishops of England got permission from the Pope to erect it on their own power. And so when that happened in uh, Clement the 12th, I think it was, or the 14th in 1773, um, well, the, the, the release was given shortly after, but Clement the, the 14th was the one who allowed those little crucifixes. And I couldn't believe it because I actually had one of those, you know, from my family. So one of us could use that and get all the indulgences. But if we lent it to someone or and they couldn't get the same indulgence, a family dropped off some things one day. And in that box of items. I found one of those crucifixes and I called them and said, you don't want to give this away. This is for your family and your some, some, you know, your grandmother or your great grandfather or somebody in your family got this for your family. And they said, Oh, what does this mean? I said, well, don't give it away. You need to keep that so that you have that for your stations. If you ever can't get out of bed and they said, oh, such a, we don't really pray the stations, but we'll take the crucifix. I said, OK, I had a feeling maybe they had um, they weren't I don't know if they were still living their faith. But, mm-hmm. you know, something like that from the past can really rekindle and invigorate uh, somebody's um, spiritual life and have them maybe even come back by praying the stations. Who knows? Wow. Uh, that's Sister Mary Eucharisto with me today on the program, whether you're watching this on video or you're listening on the radio or on the podcast. It's uh, great to have you on, Sister. Sister Mary Eucharista is uh, is engaged at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center in Spokane, Washington, directing programs and retreats and days of prayer and, and uh, spiritual direction, many things that she's doing there to help foster the life of faith. And having her on today is a chance to not only reflect on Lent, but to dig into this devotion of the Stations of the Cross. And it's a thrill to have you there. You know, I'm struck by the thing that you just shared. Um, I, I've heard this idea that um, healing the family tree, you've probably heard of that, generational healing. Yes. And, and some of generational healing and healing of the family tree is about removing the blockages to the inheritance of blessings that the Lord has intended for a family to receive and that is intended to flow from generation to generation. But as a result of whether it is um, a personal sin or the, you know, the sins of one generation 
that blockages come in or even spiritual attacks, curses and hexes and demonic interference that the Lord intends to cleanse the bloodlines of any blockages so that the fullness of what the Lord has willed to pour into families generation to generation would be experienced. And it's something that I've prayed for um, for, for years and years for my own family, that Lord, use me, use my wife and go back through the generations, back through our ancestors and cleanse the bloodlines of any blockages to the inheritance of blessings that you long to pour forth into our family's lives. But I've never thought about it in terms of like the, the concreteness of like a specific blessing coming from a, um, a holy object uh, that's associated with an indulgence. Like you're mentioning the Stations of the Cross crucifix. And I'm thinking, wow, what a, what a really um, neat manifestation of that idea. Wow, no kidding. Um, I remember also when I was growing up, mom had a picture of Pope uh, Pius, bless, I think, he, I'm not sure if he's venerable or, or blessed, uh, Pius XII, but when she did go over to the Holy, uh, to for the Holy Year in 1950, she got a papal blessing and brought it back with her. And I remember I had, I, I went to Whitworth. And so I had some Protestant professors of mine come over for dinner once and they came over and were curiously looking at that and said, can you believe it? Look at this. Wow. Look at that indulgences thing. I said, you know, that indulgences, um, you know, it's a spiritual indulgence. It's something that isn't. And they said, well, we know, we know. And I said, you know, so we talked a little bit about, you know, Luther and the corruption in the church back in the day, but also the power of Christ uh, in his church and the authority of the church. And they were very, they were thoughtful about it. It was, uh, but they were like, oh my gosh, this is just, look at this, scraped back all the way to the Middle Ages here, <laughs> time of the indulgences. And I said, oh no, we still have indulgences in the church. And they said, yeah, we, we knew, but we've never seen an, an outward sign like this. That's amazing. We said, well, it's a huge blessing. And really, you guys, it doesn't, when you think about a blessing, when a blessing is coming from somewhere, it's not a malediction, it's a blessing. It's holy, it's good. And they're like, oh, we know, we know. We totally respect this, sister. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> That's really encouraging to hear that. That really is. So sister, uh, I don't think we're going to get through all 14 of the stations in our program today. So I, I I'm prophetically announcing that we're going to have a two-part program here. And so in part one, we're going to dive into these mysteries of the 14 stations of the cross. I will start with something, a simple one that you mentioned picking up a pamphlet. One of the more I think famous and popular um, meditation guides for the stations of the cross comes from St. Alphonsus de Liguori. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, I am. I heard it almost every Friday for years and years and years. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's the, the prayer uh, that, that ends every mystery, right? It starts off. The mystery is, uh, it like he personalizes the mystery, but then he um, he has a particular prayer that is um, connected to each of these particular mysteries. Um, I love gonna, thee, Jesus, my love. I beg pardon for having ever offended thee. Permit me never to offend thee again. Grant that I may love thee always, and then do with me as thou wilt. Oh, sister, sister, you're now you're flexing. You are just flexing. <laughs> Spiritual flex, folks. I was gonna look it up, uh, but I and then it's just like, yes, that is it. I love say that one more time because I think you're gonna bring back a lot of memories for a lot of folks, but it's a profound prayer to end yeah. every one of his meditations. And so affectionate from the heart of St. Alphonsus. Yes. I love thee, Jesus, my love. I beg pardon for having ever offended thee. Permit me never to offend thee again. Grant that I may love thee always and then do with me as thou wilt. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I mean, right there, talk about a like theology and spirituality of discipleship. Yeah. It, it's right there. It's, it's rooted yeah. in love. It's personal. It's connected to Christ and it's connected to the stations of the cross. So, 
now, now I'm going to flex a little bit, sister. Here All we go. right, go for I, I'm it. Not gonna, I'm not going to flex in the same way because I'm going to bring up a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in this section that is entitled, and you can see it on the screen if you're following along here, Our Communion in the Mysteries of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful title of that section yes. of the Catechism? Our yeah. communion, that's like our sharing in, our union with the mysteries of Jesus. And then look at paragraph 521. It says this, Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lived. And he lives it in us. Okay, one more time. Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lived, and he lives it in us. And then down here, there's a, there's a quote. We must continue to accomplish in ourselves the stages of Jesus's life and his mysteries and often to beg him to perfect and realize them in us and in his whole church. For it is the plan of the Son of God to make us and the whole church partake, participate, share in his mysteries, and to extend them to and continue them in us and in his whole church. This is his plan for fulfilling his mysteries in us. Now, sister, what do you think about paragraph 521 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church? I totally engage in that. And I think we all do on some level. We don't maybe realize it, but uh, first of all, I love it to answer your question. Um, but also I, I am drawn to realize too that every mass that we participate in is the living of Jesus' mysteries in ourselves and when you think about what happens with the Eucharist at the Mass, when we put ourselves into the basket of the, um, you know, the the offering uh, that is taken at least in the, the Sunday Mass, and that uh, the bread and the wine for the sacrifice are brought up with that ourselves, and the bread and wine is us, and we then are offered to God through the priest at the offertory in a sacrificial offering that then in is transubstantiated into Jesus at the consecration. So the crucifixion is taking place and the separation of the body and the blood is the death of Christ until he comes again, but also in his resurrection. And then when the priest takes a little piece of the host and puts it into the chalice, that is the resurrection enacted at mass. These mysteries are happening now in those times of the mass. And also, by the way, when we read scripture, that is also happening at that time, this great anamnesis that takes place. And then we go in procession to receive what used to be us and now is Jesus. We bring him back to our pews and then we bring him forth to the world to share Go and glorify the Lord by your lives. Thanks be to God. This is what that is. And the stations do the same thing. Amen. Beautiful, sister. Sister Mary Eucharista is talking with me today. We're reflecting on uh, these mysteries in the life of Christ, and we're going to dive into the stations of the cross and do so from the perspective that you've just heard. And uh, two parts to that. The first part is that there's an inheritance of blessings that the Lord has established in connection to these beautiful devotions where he wants to bless you in ways that are utterly personal and connected with your journey this Lent into the desert that has your name on it. And in doing so, here's the second point, the mysteries that we discuss in the Stations of the Cross is far more than us using our imagination to connect in, in some historical past event, but rather to ponder the way in which the mystery that we discuss is coming alive in our lives, has already touched our lives, that somehow we're already sharing in the mystery of the way of the cross. And so as we reflect on each of these 14 stations, we're going to be praying and even begging that the Lord would, in fact, bring about in us 
a deeper share in the mysteries of the Stations of the Cross. Did you know that's what we were going to do today, sister? I kind of suspected that I was going to talk about that anamnesis part, you know, that we're living out these mysteries. And, you know, I mean, how many times have we heard someone say, well, you got to just carry your cross or, you know, oh boy, you are really carrying a heavy cross. And it's like, we already say it in our speech, even secular people will say, boy, that's a, that's a heavy cross to carry. And they're of course, you know, metaphorizing the journey of Christ to Calvary, but it's, it's us too. It's just, it's the reality. Amen. Yes. So if you're watching this interview with uh, Sister Mary Eucharista, I just put on the screen the 14 stations of the cross, beginning with Jesus is condemned to death and then walking, uh, working down through the carries the cross. He falls the three times, et cetera, et cetera. So here are the 14 stations and it's easy enough to find them online. One of the things that we did, sister, is we got the, the pictures, right? These are like eight and a half by 11 and had them um, put in, in plastic. And, uh, and so when we would celebrate it at home and we had little kids, we would spray them out all over the ground and we'd throw in the 20 mysteries of the rosary and the kids would have to find the particular station and they got to hold up that station while we reflected on it. So there was a little bit of a engagement. That's, that's the carry brilliance, my wife's brilliance of helping these kids to want to be able to see an image, find the image. What is that mystery? Why is this it? What's happening in it? Now let's say the prayer. So. Wow. What a great physical way to engage whenever we're using our bodies, uh, especially with children, to articulate a mystery or to do something um, that is uh, more abstract. It's, it's, it's not easy to, to have the abstract. When, it, when we would pray the rosary at night, we sometimes had those 15 mysteries of the rosary that used to be on that you could turn the thing and, and they had those eight and a half by 11 beautiful or maybe eight by 10 uh, images of uh, the mysteries. And that was another really, you know, it was you got to go turn those pages. It was pretty cool. But nice. it's important. And I love that Carrie was doing that with your children. Yeah. So sister, let's dive in. Let's talk All about right. Jesus is condemned to death. So here we have Jesus before Pilate. Pilate washes his hands of the death of Christ. They cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And he is condemned to death. And so I'd love it. We could uh, share together when you meditate on that mystery of Jesus being condemned to death. Is there something that surfaces in you, something that bubbles up, whether it's a, a, an element of that scene in the scriptures? What do you meditate on and what's alive right now in you as you um, reflect on Jesus is condemned to death? Well, so many things. And I hope that this won't go to the end of the, of the, um, <laughs> the radio uh, event today. But when Jesus is condemned to death, first of all, I think of, first of all, power. You know, Jesus says to Pilate, there would be no, uh, if you know, you, you wouldn't have any power over me unless it were given to you from above. And, you know, Pilate also saying, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't answer, which I think is one of the most powerful moments in scripture, because we are all right. All of us want to be right. And Jesus says nothing to Pilate when he says, what is truth? We don't know exactly what that, uh, why he asked that question, but sometimes it's good to like look at scripture and kind of see the surrounding words that are there, uh, depending on if you're doing it, if you're meditating yourself or if you're meditating with a group, but to prepare for the stations and to prepare for the triduum, it might be valuable to go over some of the, this scripture yourself and to go through the stations and let the Holy Spirit bring to your heart those things that are alive uh, for you in your heart right now. Um, another thing that I kind of consider is, you know, today we are fighting things that are not popular. Jesus was not popular in these moments. Before his passion, he was absolutely, he was the toast of the town. Uh, everybody was proud of him. He's one of our boys. And I tell you, he's, he works miracles. He tells prophecies. We are alive and well over here in Jerusalem because we've got this incredible prophet. Well, not everybody was thinking that. And as soon as the tide turned, everyone turned away from Jesus. And when we are afflicted with 
unpopularity for our standing for what it, whether it be, uh, you know, life issues or uh, just standing for civil discourse or thinking logically in a moral fashion and trying to articulate that in our public forum um, to remember Jesus, Jesus was condemned to death and we are condemned when these things are happening sometimes. Uh, it's very rare right now that we can speak the truth that we know on a moral stance that's not popular in the United States or in the world, and everyone will be down your back. Uh, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's unprecedented in our lifetime how much persecution there is. Um, but we can also know that we have martyrs suffering right now in the Middle East. We have women suffering for the rights of just going to school or being able to show your hair. Um, they People are suffering. They are being condemned to death. And Jesus showed that this is, how do you behave in that time? Silence, humility, compassion, kindness. All the way through his passion, Jesus had the power to strike people down. I mean, he could have killed everybody around him. He could have looked at Pilate and, you know, lightning bolts could have come out of his eyes and he could have just right there. Or the high priests that were all on the side going, yay, ha ha, now we got you. And, you know, Jesus was silent. Jesus was silent. Wow. Silence. How do we withstand um, even a judgment from someone else? Um, I ask the Lord to soften my heart never to take power to myself or to imagine that I have something over someone else, but always to be in the humility of the Trinity, which Jesus was demonstrating during this time. Amen. Wow. Sister uh, Mary Eucharista, uh, what you just shared there, it just it, it connects to two points that um, bubble up. One, I, I wasn't thinking of until you shared that, and that was that, um, Jesus doesn't say, look at me, I am the manifestation of what a man fully alive is, right? But no, it's Pilate who says, behold the man, right? And it's the man who underwent the scourging, the crown of thorns, and the willingness to be condemned. And I, I wonder, like for men in particular, listening to this, are we willing to stand up and experience a passion, right? A, a, a passion that will lead to, to condemnation and death um, as a witness to, to the truth that Christ has entrusted to us for the good of others, not for our own personal good, welfare, comfort, or anything other than, in fact, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. So behold the man. That's really, that's really powerful. The second, Very. the second one that, when I think of this, Jesus is condemned to death. I think of the figure of Barabbas and I put myself in the crowd and I'm, I'm listening to Pilate say, whom do you choose? Jesus, the Nazarene or Barabbas. Now you, you probably know this, but it's one of those <gasps> kind of moments when you hear it for the first time, his first name is Jesus. And so, uh, the question is, whom do you choose? Do you choose Jesus, the Nazarene, who is, guess what? Barabbas, son of the father. That's right. Or do you choose this one over here, who is Barabbas, son of the father, Barabba, son of the father, who's also named Jesus? So you're that faced with two, you're, you're faced with two men whose names are Jesus son of the father. And now the question is, are you going to choose the one who in the face of an oppressive invading force, the Romans, will you choose insurrection, violence, theft, and murder, all human means of calculating, manipulating, and power to gain control and dominance? Or are you willing to be a true son of the father after the manner of Jesus and behold in him what it means to be a godly man, the son of the father. 
And so it's that contrast, which Jesus Barabbas will you serve? You know, when I think of Barabbas, and I remember watching Jesus of Nazareth, the one by Zeffirelli, that was so eloquent and still is. Um, that was the probably the quintessential passion movie that you'd ever want to watch before the time of The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. I remember um, seeing the uh, Quintilius, who was next to Pilate, saying, not Barabbas. He, he murdered a Roman soldier. I mean, he murdered a Roman soldier. And when you think about it, he could have really been uh, kind of a hero among the Jewish people because I'm not sure what his background was, but I think if it was Barabbas, it was would have probably been Jewish. But that he 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 was an insurrectionist. He went against the Roman law, which all of these Jews were also against the Roman law. They were looking for a political victory that Jesus wasn't going to give to them because he was in it for the spiritual victory, which had been foretold since the beginning. But this is where... Um, we can kind of see the, um, sometimes we can be deceived by what St. Benedict calls a wicked zeal. And it's a zeal for things that are not of God, even though they ostensibly are like super political things. We can get all roused up and get in there and have a wicked zeal about something like that, where that the spiritual, the spirit of God will nest in our hearts when we have peace and we're not in a violent state um but sometimes I, I don't know for some reason i just came up with that that would have been one little reflection on one station of the cross that i would have done this lent just at, at this particular station so i really like that Uh, Sister Mary Eucharista is joining me today. Please, I encourage you to learn more about her amazing work at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, ihrc.net, ihrc.net. And Sister, you might be able to give me some, like, let's say, live spiritual direction here, because <laughs> I sense inside of me the uh, anger, uh, let's call it righteous indignation, that that's what I hope it is right? That's what I hope it is. When I read about, learn about the way in which innocent kids are being seduced, cleverly drawn into a way of understanding their sexual identity that is promoted uh, vigorously and in, in with intimidation um, in our society today to uh, disrupt, undermine, and destroy their naive innocence, their latency period regarding their own sense of sexual identity. And instead, it gets disrupted with incredibly damaging and disturbing images and videos and presentations of material that um, make these kids uh, become very confused. They are confusing and they seemingly want to be confusing so that these kids' sense of innocence gets destroyed. And now they're left wondering, what's my gender identity? Uh, is there a fluidity here? Am I supposed to use and identify pronouns and other kind of policies that lead to kids being drawn into hormone treatments and surgeries that are utterly destructive and demonic in in their source so how do i really feel right so <laughs> okay so i i say all of this and and it's like i strive to live as a follower of the prince of peace and be willing to undergo a passion and a crucifixion um, on behalf of these young people but when is silence equal to assent a cowardly um uh, cooperation in an evil because I don't speak up and push back against it. So that's the road I, I walk down. I don't want to fall off either side into uh, a Barabbas attempt to try to control and destroy an evil. But on the other hand, don't remain silent and just say, well, I'll pray and 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 fast and, and God will take care of it in a way that's cowardly and um, inappropriate. So I think praying and fasting is very active. 
I think that when we have an intention that is for the good of the children, not rage against the machine, if you will, but to be at peace knowing God is in charge, but also to not let, uh, I mean, we cannot be serene when we consider the fallout of, of the disastrous things that are starting to take place and have already taken place in our schools and the methodologies and ide- ideologies of our uh, uh, that are going into the minds and hearts of children. Hopefully not our children, because we have to remove them from the source of, uh, of, of an indoctrination that is not of God. Um, and whether that is just if they are in a public school or, or in a school where this is taught, that's where accompanying our children and, and saying, you know, this is what society is believing right now. Um, we could stand up and, and, you know, gesticulate and do all kinds of, of demonstrations about this. But really, we need to know in our hearts what the truth is. And this is what God teaches us. I mean, how did the Christians in times of persecution manage this? Well, when pushed and against a, a hard place, you have to stand. You have to stand. And But you, how do you do that? Do you do it like Jesus or do you do it like uh, am I going to go kill a Roman soldier? Um, you do it with the spirit of Christ. And that's where, you know, we're going to find men and women who don't have jobs because they could not uh, handle, they could not, it's not they couldn't handle, they, they chose not to be in a destructive mindset um, on the work that they were doing that used to be really good work. And now they can't function in that way anymore because our civil liberties have been curtailed. Um, but to maintain civil discourse, if we're on social media, how do we speak about these things? Do we have a, um, a an air about us that is arrogant and um, undermining and, uh, I mean, not of the Holy Spirit? I think it's good to ask ourselves that. Amen. So Sister Mary Eucharista joining me today on the program. We've gotten through one mystery and oh we're my at the goodness. end of our program. Thank you so much for joining me today on Sound Insight. Join me tomorrow with Sister Mary Eucharista as we pick up our cross and continue the Stations of the Cross in our Lent. God bless your day.